Well, the scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. The evangelist Luke uh, will begin reading in chapter 4 at verse 1 and read through verse 49. You remember that Luke's chapters are very long, at least most of them. And so we'll be reading a large portion of chapter 24 this morning. The sermon passage is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Not enough, the whole chapter really is about the resurrection of Christ and us from the dead, and yet, felt like 20 verses was plenty <laughs> for us today. So Luke 24, 1-49 is our scripture reading and our sermon passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-20. to 20. Brothers and sisters, you are about to hear the reading of something that is not merely words of man. Certainly men were used to record these words. They wrote them down with their own hands in many cases, and others they used scribes. But they're not the words of man, though God certainly employed the personalities of those human authors who wrote them down, who sent these as letters. These are the words of God. And because these are the words of God, they are true. Because God is truth. But He does not, He cannot utter falsehood. There are very few things that God cannot do. But He cannot lie. And He would not lie. This is the Word of God. He is speaking to you. So please give your full attention to God's Word. Luke 24, 1-49. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, to, uh, to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad that one of them, named Cleopas, said, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, And besides all this, 
It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and, and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, while they still disbelieved for joy uh, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boil, broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 20. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the, on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, how good it is to know and to acknowledge and to trust and to believe that Jesus Christ is risen. How good it is to know these things despite the attempts of many throughout the years, through the centuries, to disprove it, to seek out and to search for His bones, His tomb, and to prove conclusively that there He still lays. But Lord, You know better, and You have shown us better. And we thank You that all attempts to disprove the resurrection of Christ have been thwarted. We pray, dear Lord, that you would grow our trust in this truth. That you would cause us to be unmoved. Despite anyone or anything that would try to shake us in our convictions. We are grateful that Christ Jesus is risen. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as your word is now preached. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have you ever given much thought about why it is that Christians observe the Sabbath on the first day of the week instead of the seventh? Now, in some of our circles, it's referred to as the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. But given the fact that God commanded in the Old Testament, He commanded His Old Testament people to observe the Sabbath on the seventh day, the day from which or on which He rested from His work, why is it, how is it that we worship Him on the first day instead, the day of creation, not the day of rest? Now, some sects of Christianity still have their day of worship on the seventh day of the week, such as the Seventh-day Adventists. But they are abnormal in that regard with regard to all of Christian history. Many Christians don't think it really matters what day of the week we set as our day of worship, as long as we do it. But from very early on, in fact, beginning on the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead, the very day that he burst forth from the grave, that day Christians began gathering for the purpose of worship. For the purpose of talking about Jesus. Talking about what he had done, and of course, ultimately talking about the fact that the risen Lord was standing right in their midst. The evening day of Christ's resurrection, his disciples were gathered together in a room, and as John puts it in John 20, 19, Jesus came and stood among them. We just read the passage from Luke 24 where Jesus comes to them in that room where they're gathered, they're sheltering, they're afraid. They saw what 
the authorities and the Jews had done to their leader, their, their rabbi, their lord. But they were afraid of what might happen to them. And so they were gathered together on that first resurrection day. And the next Sunday, virtually the same thing happened, except this time Thomas, doubting Thomas, was there as well. And all of his doubts were swept away by the presence of the risen Lord. He didn't even take Jesus up on his offer to put his hand in his side. From the very beginning, Christians have gathered on the first day of the week rather than the seventh. And so as you can imagine, the appearance of Jesus to his disciples on two consecutive Sundays would have made an indelible impression on them. Sunday was the day that Christ's disciples meet with him. He did it the first Sunday. He did it the next Sunday. And he does it every Sunday, even down to this Sunday. He meets with his people on his day of resurrection. And so the reason that we gather together on Sundays, the Lord's Day, is to mark the most significant event in the history of Christianity, indeed the history of the world. An event so important that if it hadn't happened, there would be no Christianity, there would be no church to be gathered The Apostle Paul says that if this event didn't happen, then we above all people are most to be pitied because without it, our hope is utterly in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event so important that celebrating it one time a year simply isn't enough. It's not enough. It's so important that it is to be celebrated one day out of seven, once a week, every Sunday. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is nothing, there is no one worth believing in. But since it did in fact happen, it is worth celebrating every single week, 52 times a year. As we make our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is a fact of history and it is essential to the Christian faith. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is a fact of history and it is essential to the Christian faith. The sermon's a three-pointer. The first point, of first importance. The second, if the dead are not raised. And the third... But, in fact, again, of first importance, that's the first part of the sermon. The second, if the dead are not raised. And the third, but, in fact. So let's look at the first section of the sermon of first importance. Verse 1 of our passage says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now, we're jumping in in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I've never preached through this book of the Bible uh, before in my life, much less here at Mid-Cities. But I'm trusting that most of you, if not everyone here, is familiar with the fact that the Corinthian church is a troubled church. It's got some issues, doesn't it? Paul reserves some of his sternest language, maybe not quite the most stern language, but some of it for this church. He uses strong words. He's already used strong words earlier in this letter to the church in Corinth. They had issues with very serious sin that Paul, as we've said, he's already addressed. And they're struggling theologically. And it's 
it's because they're struggling theologically that they have these issues with sin. And so Paul is going to address one of the theological issues, one of the theological struggles that they are, in fact, dealing with. He's going to remind his brothers and sisters in Corinth of the vital nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to remind them of its importance for their lives. He's going to remind them of the centrality of Christ's resurrection for their faith. You see, for Paul, the resurrection is the gospel. John Calvin writes about this, saying that if the resurrection is taken away, they have no religion left them. No assurance of faith, and in short, they have no faith remaining. Now, this is why Paul writes that it is the gospel in which they stand. And he goes on to say in verse 2 that it is the gospel, Jesus' resurrection, by which they are being saved, if they hold fast to the word that Paul had already preached to them. And now he's going to give a brief summary of the gospel that he preached to them when he was with them, culminating in Christ's resurrection. Something's wrong with some people's view of the resurrection of the dead in general in that church. And it is impacting their theology of Christ's resurrection. And Paul wants to nip it in the bud. He's gotten word of the problem. And he's trying to stop it now. He's trying to arrest it before it goes further. And as we'll see later on, some in the church, in the Corinthian church, don't believe in any resurrection at all. And so because Paul knows just how essential the resurrection is to the faith that he holds so dear, this is where he begins to focus his attention. He says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These are first-tier doctrines, such that if a person doesn't believe in Christ's death, and his resurrection, he cannot be considered a Christian. He cannot be considered a Christian if he does not believe that Jesus Christ died for his sins, for your sins, for my sins, that he was raised on the third day. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. To be honest about it. Now, most people they're willing to grant that Jesus lived. And they're willing to grant that if, if he lived, then he must have died. But they would not concede that his death was because of our sins and most certainly would not go along with him being resurrected from the dead. They, they would be like those who have gone on campaigns in Jerusalem to find the crypt, the family vault, the tomb of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Unsuccessful as they have been. Or they would simply deny without any proof that Christ was raised from the dead because such things can't happen. So it is his resurrection that is of ultimate importance. It's even above first tier importance. It's his resurrection that verifies that he is God who came in the flesh. His resurrection proves that he died for our sins because only God who became a man could die in the place, in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we all know that before modern scientific method was invented, there was no way to know the truth, right? We all know this. This is a foregone conclusion. The ancients were just ignorant. They were backwards. 
They didn't know anything. These pre-modern people, of course, would believe that a man would be raised from the dead. The ancients did have ways of ascertaining the truth, however. They might not have had the scientific method. They might not have had all of the, the developments in science which, which are remarkable and amazing in many, many ways, not to discount them in any way. But it's not as if the ancients had no way of determining the truth, of, of getting at the truth, of knowing what the truth was. And in the next few verses, Paul makes his case, this ancient one, for the veracity of the resurrection of the Lord. He begins by, in verse 5 by saying this, He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, the, the ancient people of the ancient world, they did have ways of determining what the truth was. Of course, they had their five senses upon which the modern scientific method is built. They could see things. They could hear things, touch things. But if something happened that not everybody was a witness to or was it a, a common occurrence for all people, they had a way of determining what the truth was. And it was based at least in part on the evidence, the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul has just given hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus Christ alive after he had been crucified, after he had died, after he had been buried. Hundreds of people were witnesses to him being raised back from the dead. And the first witness that he mentions is Cephas, of course a nickname for Peter. Then he talks about the twelve. This is Paul's term for those 12 disciples, those original 12 apostles. And of course, by this time, Judas was already dead. It may be that Paul uh, is saying that Jesus appeared to the 12 after they had incorporated Matthias into the 12. It could just be a shorthand way of referring to those 11, those 12 original apostles, as opposed to apostles like Paul who came later on. And Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Only some of whom have fallen asleep. There are hundreds and hundreds of people, he's saying, from this perhaps a group, this group of people that, Paul, that Jesus appeared to, who can still testify to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's not necessarily giving any names here, but he's saying there are witnesses. It's not just a one-off, or a couple of strange people saying this. Hundreds of people know that it's the truth. Now, there's no specific mention of this, of this appearance to these more than 500 people in the Gospels, but Calvin and others point to Luke chapter 24, verse 33, which says, And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. It could be that at that point when Jesus appeared to the eleven, that they were with a crowd of people. It could be. Then Paul says that he, that is, Jesus appeared to James. Now, there is more than one James in the Bible, but Paul here is referring to James, the half-brother of Jesus. One commentator wrote that James appears not to have been a follower of Jesus before the crucifixion. And F.F. F. Bruce compared the conversion of James becoming a follower to Jesus to that of Paul, writing that Jesus appeared to James 
evidently produced in James a revolutionary effect comparable to that which a similar experience later produced in Paul himself. Jesus appeared to his brother James. And James believed, finally, at long last, that his brother was actually his half-brother, who was the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. And then Paul writes that Jesus appeared to all of the apostles, meaning all of the rest, not the original 11 or, or 12 if you count Matthias, but all of the rest. Men like James and Paul and others who were called to be apostles, though not in the original apostolic sense of the word. All of those who, in the words of Calvin, said Christ had assigned the office of preaching the gospel. And then, last of all, Christ appeared to Paul, who, Paul says, is the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. Now, as Paul writes this, is he, is he writing this to demonstrate his humility, his lowliness, his Christ-likeness? Is he, is he demonstrating just how bad he feels about himself? Is this just an exercise in, in navel-gazing and self-immolation? Why does Paul include this part? He's not saying this because he still loathes himself because of his persecution of the church. He's not writing this out of some kind of false humility or an attempt to show just how humble he was. He adds the part about him persecuting the church to give even more weight to his personal testimony. What did Paul do before he became Paul, before he met Jesus on that road uh, on his way out of town? He hated Jesus. He hated the church. He wanted to kill the church. But Christ completely changed him. And that change began with Paul when, when Christ met him on that road. And it was an utter, utter complete change for Paul. He is living proof both of Christ's resurrection and the power of the resurrection in his life. Because that, that power is what brought Paul's dead heart to life. Paul is a living, breathing testament to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, if the dead are not raised. That is why, in part, this notion that the dead are not raised is so problematic to Paul. He has experienced the power of Christ's resurrection at work in his own life. Now, of course, there were, there were those in Jesus' day, the Sadducees, who taught that there was no resurrection. They believed, apparently, in some form of annihilationism. It just You die, and that's where you go, and there is no afterlife. You're just done, and your body never comes back. Even more importantly, Paul, as he says in verse 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Christ's resurrection from the dead is predicated on the fact that resurrection from the dead is possible. Lazarus' resurrection from the dead was a foretaste of it. It proved, at least to a limited group of people, that resurrection from the dead is possible, that it is a supernatural event that can happen. Paul had seen the risen Lord. He had experienced profound change in his life from one who openly hated Jesus and his followers to a follower of Jesus himself. And so the denial of a general resurrection of all believers, indeed of all people, 
is offensive to Paul because of what it implied. It implied that Jesus Christ had not been raised. And it implied that everything in which Paul had placed his faith was in vain. And so Paul has to take this way of thinking to its logical conclusion. And so he begins in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can, you, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These are people whom Paul addressed at the beginning of his letter as saints. He's writing to a church of Christ Jesus. He regards them as brothers and sisters in Christ, despite the problems that have arisen in the Corinthian church. He wants to help them. But how can some of them say there is no resurrection from the dead? He's saying, in effect, think about it. We've been preaching Christ as being raised from the dead, but some of you are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Do you know what that means? As Paul says in verse 13, if there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Either they hadn't thought this through fully, they didn't think about the logical conclusions to this way of thinking, or they no longer believed that Jesus had been raised. And so Paul is demonstrating the serious problem that there is in denying the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then not even Jesus Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of the preaching about Him and all of the faith of those who believe in Him, it is in vain. It serves no purpose. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of effort. And those who preach the resurrection of Christ, if He has not indeed been raised, are liars who have been misrepresenting God Himself. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. If, in truth, Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is pointless, it is fraudulent, and all of humanity is without any hope. Christianity is the only grace-based religion on the face of the earth. It's the only religion in which your salvation is not predicated on your ability to do good works. And that is because Christianity understands. It understands that there is no good work that a sinful human being can do. There is nothing good enough that a sinner can do in order to earn, to effect his or her own salvation. And so if Christianity is not true, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, there is no hope for mankind. This is all you've got. Pack it up and head home. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Because that's all the hope that the world has to offer. That's all the hope that any other religion has to offer. But not Christianity. And it's all based upon this one event, Christ's resurrection from the dead. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to spiritualize it, to say that it doesn't really mean that Jesus was literally raised from the dead, but instead symbolizes rebirth, renewal. Rejuvenation, it is to rip the heart out of the Christian faith. There's nothing left of the faith if Jesus is not risen. Christianity falls, falls apart if Jesus is not risen. His bones are still in the grave somewhere in Jerusalem. 
he's not risen, let's go home right now and start enjoying that meal that really has no purpose. (laughs) Now, there are some so-called churches that do not believe in a resurrection of Christ. They don't preach a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They spiritualize it. And then they try to make it about morality and about what you need to do. It's about an ideal that you need to try to achieve. It's pointless. And it's not Christianity. It's not the truth. Because if Christ Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there is no truth in Christianity. Those churches who go through this motion of religion for the sake of just perpetuating themselves... This is foolishness. If Christ Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we, above all people, are to be pitied. There is no point in any of this. There's no meaning in Christ's death on that Good Friday if Christ Jesus is not raised. But that leads us to the third and the final point of the sermon But in fact. Paul, so far, especially in the preceding verses from 12 to 19, he has has conditioned everything that he has just said with an if. If Christ be not raised from the dead, then our hope is in vain. These are conditional clauses. If this is true then this is also true. This is the logical, the natural consequence of of that being true. But he follows up all of those conditional clauses with this beautiful statement in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Everything in verses 12 to 19 was for the sake of argument, to take this idea that there is no resurrection to its logical conclusion. If there is no resurrection, then Christ himself has not been raised. But the truth, the truth of the capital T, is that Christ has been raised from the dead. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that your faith is not in vain. All those who fell asleep in Christ have not perished. They are with him right now. They are awaiting the resurrection and the glorification of their bodies, which will come forth out of the grave just as Jesus himself did. On that first Easter Sunday, the women who had followed him from Galilee, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' own mother, and others, they went to the tomb. These women who had served Jesus faithfully, they rose up early on Sunday morning, and they went to that tomb to minister to the body of their Lord. And despite the fact that they were incredulous when they found an empty tomb, they showed more faith than all the other apostles and the disciples. They're waking up. They wanted to care for the body, the physical remains of the Lord. And when they got to the tomb, the great stone that had been put in front of that tomb to ensure that nobody could steal it, it had been sealed to show that it had been tampered with. They could prove it. 
soldiers had been set beside that stone to make sure that nobody would come in because the Jews were certain that somebody would try to, to rob his body from the grave and claim that he had been raised from the dead. But the, tone, the, 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 the stone had been rolled away. And when they went in, Jesus' body was not there. Now they were understandably confused by this. And while they were standing there perplexed, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They later described these men as angels. And they asked the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living in this tomb of death? Jesus' body had not been stolen. Jesus, who died, who had died on the cross on a Friday that only in retrospect could have been called good, was no longer dead, according to these men, these angels. He is not here, but has risen, the men continued. He has risen. He is risen still. Jesus had conquered death. And He did it not for Himself, but for sinners, for you and me. His resurrection from the dead was a vindication for Him. It proved that He is indeed the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. But His resurrection also from from the dead, it means justification for us. He took our sins upon Himself on the cross and He buried them in the tomb. And they remain in the tomb, but Jesus Christ does not. He buried them. He put your sins and my sins to death. But He did not stay. He is risen. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that He is the Son of God who has risen from the dead, then you too already are risen. Bodily. But your soul, your heart, has been raised. That dead, lifeless heart of stone that you once had has been replaced with a living and beating heart of flesh whose affections are attuned to Christ Jesus Himself. You who were once dead in your sins and trespasses, you have been brought to life. And you can rest assured that your bodies will be brought back to life too. All in time. They will be raised. Our resurrection from the dead has been secured by Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the single most important fact of the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christian faith. And so, brothers and sisters, His resurrection is worth celebrating, not just once a year, but once every week. And when we go to be with the Lord, we will celebrate His resurrection every day because it is because of His resurrection that we will be raised to be with Him. So, go and enjoy your Easter dinner, if that's your plan today. Enjoy one another's company and good food. Enjoy it. I know you don't get to do it every Sunday. Enjoy it. But remember, He is risen And that is good news. That is the gospel. He is risen. Because of that, I'll see you back here next week. (laughs) Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that Christ Jesus, our Lord, is risen. We thank you, dear Lord, 
that it is such a momentous, important event in history that we can never forget it. Indeed, we must celebrate it each and every week, lest we forget. But we do thank you for all of the Easter celebrations. We do thank you for this. It is interesting to look upon the world and both to look on and dismay or concern how the world has appropriated those things that we hold so dear, and especially the resurrection of Christ, but to also look upon it with a charitable eye and see how you may use even secular celebrations of Easter to draw sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that those who don't know you would ask questions, that they would be prompted by these non-religious celebrations of Easter, that they would ask questions of those who know answers. And so we pray, dear Lord, that even those who we may be gathering with today who don't know you, that their minds would become curious that they would have a a desire to know and that they would seek their answers in you, O Lord. We are thankful that Jesus Christ is risen and we are grateful that we are too. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.